0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Episode 53. I am Michael Ianni-Pilarkio, your host here on Friday morning, November the 3rd. It is early this morning. It's just a little bit past 3.30 a.m., and I am recording to you from my small studio here in my home in Caledon, Ontario. So happy that you've joined. Today, we're going to be focusing on a number of elements that sort of look at, or a number of segments that look at at various things in your toolkit as a strategist. So we're going to be talking about strategy. I'm going to have one segment that focuses on a small uh, piece on data, uh, data science more specifically. And I don't know, we'll, we'll throw some other things in. I've been reading lots of different things, might short share a little bit uh, in terms of some stuff that I've recently been reading. So it's a mixed bag today. So glad that you have taken the time to join me here on the soon-to-be-renamed podcast. So buckle up, everyone, and enjoy the upcoming show. So nice of you to join me. I got just so many different things kind of percolating in my brain. I was jotting down, as I often do through the week. I I make little notes of things where I say maybe this is good for the upcoming podcast, or maybe this is something that's good for a future podcast. And I really have a long list of uh, various items. So really, over the next number of uh, weeks uh, through November. I'll have all kinds of um, interesting things to talk about in the areas quite particularly of uh, strategy uh, and entrepreneurship. My mind uh, has you know, steadily been shifting um, into other sort of areas uh, of thought, uh, returning, I think, to many areas of, of um, previous thinking and work that I've done as I uh, continue to sort of transition my uh, day-to-day work uh, at the school uh, and prepare to excitingly step into the work I'll be doing in the new year uh, as the chief strategy officer for uh, Project X. So as I've been making this list, um, I sort of said, what would I want to bring to the listeners uh, today? And I've been reading a ton Uh, which has been nice to sort of step. I've always, uh, you know, I always read a lot, Um, but I'm sort of um, reading some different things again as I sort of prepare for uh, a new role in 2024. I've also pulled off my shelf some of my old favorites, Uh, and there's been one book in particular. Um, It's a book by Ben Horowitz, uh, who is a best-selling author, Um, and it's a book called... The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And uh, it's an older book. I think it's from 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I don't have the book in front of me here in the studio right now. Um, But it's a terrific book. uh, And Ben Horowitz, who uh, today is uh, a major venture capitalist with his partner, Mark Andreessen, uh, they have, you know, together really done uh, amazing work in that early shaping, I have to say, of the Internet. Um, And Ben has had a a series of companies. Now they invest uh, in companies, um, companies like Facebook, for instance, and and Twitter. When these were small organizations, they were startups. And so I pulled this down. Uh, I've read it so many times. I actually... uh, had a a copy of this book that had been leafed through so many times that um, uh, it was falling apart. And so then I, a number of years ago, picked up a second copy, and um, uh, I recently pulled that one down and started rereading it. It's always nice to reread. I tend to annotate my books uh, as part of my reading process, and then I move that into kind of my knowledge capture and knowledge management process, which I think I've spoken about before. But it's a terrific book, um, focused on entrepreneurship and startup companies, but there's just so many good lessons in there, uh, not only about um, startups, but things just in and around uh, leadership. And I had this little, this little quote uh, and thought here. You know, there's a question where he asks, what makes a good leader? And... I like this question because he talks about it in the sense of the startup environment, you know, that entrepreneurial environment. And entrepreneurs have always really, you know, had to be incredibly resilient. There's lots of challenges. There's lots of unpredictability in being an entrepreneur. Well, in today's day and age of... Uh, rapid change, is exponential change. You've heard me, I've used this term a number of times, the fog of change. We can, as individuals, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, we have been and will continue to encounter situations that really can push us off balance, that can challenge us as leaders. And so I loved, you know, this question, what makes a good leader? And I had little notes in the margin uh, of the book that were pertaining to a venture, a previous venture uh, of mine, a consulting firm that I had created prior to um, uh, uh, joining Branksome Hall. Um, And it's funny how different points in your life, um, things in books, they sort of become a different type of lens depending on what's happening. And, you know, when I read this question now, about what makes a good leader, I frame that content that I'm reading in the context of today. Today meaning our general times. And we are in times of exponential change. We're in times of extreme, I have to say, disruption. You know, thinking, you know, mass disruption a number of years ago with with the COVID pandemic. But organizations... Even coming out of the pandemic now, you might feel like things are always kind of feeling off balance, right? There's a lot of major things happening in the world. There's economic changes that are happening that our organizations, you know, are in this particular environment. The needs of our employees uh, are changing, the needs of our customer. are whatever business you might be in, whether you are in a, a traditional type of business, whether you're a school, whether you're a not-for-profit, you know, our, the needs of our customers are changing because the forces around them are changing. And this was the really salient piece that, that I picked up on uh, this kind of time around reading um, from the book, What Makes a Good Leader? And I love this. Uh, ben Horowitz says, a good leader is someone who can focus and make the best move when there are no good moves to be made. It's it's really, it's an important phrase. It's an important sentiment that a good leader is someone who can focus. Let's, Let's break this apart. Can focus. So when we find ourselves in a, a moment of disruption, uh, confusion, when we find ourselves, I don't know, in a moment of crisis, uh, in a moment where there are no good options. A good leader has that ability to settle the waters and focus. The first thing you have to be able to do is focus. When you are in the fog of change, slow it down, and focus. The second part of this statement, okay, so if a good leader is someone who can focus, it's to make the best move when there are no good moves to make. So this is, A, an acknowledgement that we sometimes find ourselves as leaders in situations where all the options before us, none of them are great whatever it might be. Again, um, the uh, examples in Ben's book, he's talking at a very specific time uh, when uh, his company was in real financial challenges. and They couldn't raise funding. Uh, They had uh, customers, major customers that they were losing. Uh, They had a certain size of staff. Like, the conditions for him in writing this was he had to be able to focus and make the best possible decision, the best move amongst this selection of not great moves. And if you're a leader listening to this, you probably have found yourself in this situation at some point in your leadership journey. And if you're just part of an organization or sometimes you're sort of thinking like, wow, this wasn't really a great decision that my organization has made or that the leaders in my organization have made or the leader. Pause and, and reflect for a moment that there may not have been any great moves to make. And what makes really brilliant leadership is that even when you have no good moves to make, You focus and you make the best move you can. You don't become paralyzed. You don't, you know, look for excuses. You don't shift blame. You just, I have this expression, you know, we we find ourselves quite often in imperfect uh, um, uh, situations. And in those situations, we're going to quite often have to make imperfect decisions the leadership emerges that it's that person that says, I'm making the best move I possibly can. And I have to help those that report to me. I have to help my organization accept that, move through that, um, deal with that, act upon that, navigate our way through from this decision to action and then whatever other decision might emerge. So I just pull that out as, a, as one piece. There are just so, so many um, great tidbits. This is a book I cannot recommend highly enough um, to, to the listening audience. Again, that was a, a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And it's just one of uh, many things I've been reading. I've actually just begun. I'm only into the first chapter. His, uh, another book of his, it's called What You Do Is Who You Are. Uh, and the, bi- the sort of subline uh, is how to create your business culture. And I, just from chapter one, I'm uh, already t- beginning to tease out um, a number of things that I really enjoy um, thinking about and pondering in terms of creating great cultures uh, and, and creating companies. There, there's a there's a piece uh, very early on in that book where he says, you know, you want to create a company culture where people will look back and remember how much they loved working in that environment. Uh, and, and it struck me because that's something that's core to to who I am as well. You know, I look for places where I just love the work and the culture and, and I look to, to try and create those things. So this book, uh, Just Getting Started, uh, What You Do is Who You Are. I might actually introduce a little book segment maybe once a month. I'll uh, create a segment where I, I tease apart elements of, of what's on my my reading table and uh, I bring that to the community. Let's take a really short break Uh, And then we'll jump into segment number two. Hey, GarageCast fans, we've got something big to share. First off, a huge shout out. And thanks to everyone who's been tuning in this past year. You all rock and we couldn't do it without you. Now get ready for some major awesomeness. We're not just sprucing up the place. We're taking Garage Cast to a whole new level. Yep, we're talking a new name, fresh branding, and even a tighter focus on topics that'll make you go, whoa, I got to tell my friends about this. Our very own Michael is crafting an epic new vision for the show. New topics, new format, the whole shebang. He's super pumped to share where we're heading, and trust us, you're going to love it. So keep your ears peeled and your minds open. The new era of GarageCast, or whatever cool name we come up with, is going to be something you won't want to miss. Stay tuned, folks. Welcome back. I uh, uh, (laughs) love that little... Insert there a plug for the soon-to-be rebranded uh, podcast. Here, um, you should see that come out. I think within the next one, maybe two weeks at most, uh, and it'll be a relaunch. Um, and you might be wondering, well, what what does that look like exactly? Well, first, you'll notice that the cover art um, for the podcast will change. Um, the existing cover art <clears throat> for The Garage Cast will remain with uh, Branksome Hall. And again, they have intention to, I believe, relaunch that. Uh, And when they do, I'm happy to share uh, that info with the listening audience so that you can go and uh, give that a listen and to subscribe. Um, So you'll see the cover art change. And the name of the podcast itself will change. But you don't have to do anything. You will just notice, um, uh, just like you do now, Uh, If you've subscribed to the podcast, you will see um, an alert that there is a new podcast. Uh, The name uh, will read differently um, and the cover uh, artwork uh, will look differently. But your host, (laughs) which is me, uh, will uh, sound the same and we'll be bringing you, uh, again, a very similar type of um, format in terms of number of segments that look at a variety of topics. Again, because I'll be stepping into uh, quite a different sort of world of uh, work, the topics will become more focused, I believe, on strategy. Uh, There'll be quite a focus on uh, on data, since that's the, the uh, again, sp- uh, very specific area of work that I'll be focusing on with Project X. Um, I'll be talking a lot about entrepreneurship, uh, probably more so than I, I have been. I'll be really talking about, though, as well, the impact that technology and technological change uh, and exponential change is having on on all industries and all uh, areas of your life. So again, for the educators that are listening and people that are within schools, uh, I hope that you will find the future podcast to, to be um, continually engaging uh, and bringing some Some different uh, topics uh, and perspectives and things to explore. Uh, And, you know, even when I'm not specifically talking about those things in the context of education, you'll be able to take those things and apply them to your own situation. And sometimes we'll still talk about education um, because education is a very large part of the world uh, we live in. Um, You know, uh, when we're talking about other industry areas, people need to be educated as young people. And then people go off to post-secondary and there's professional development, right? There's, there's education of adults. And so a lot of that stuff will all be wrapped up in the new, um, relaunched soon to be relaunched podcast. I wanted to talk a little bit about, we're going to shift gears here and talk, uh, strategy, um, and strategic thinking and things to have, um, uh, in, in your toolkit. And today what I wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited because I've been doing some, some personal writing, um, interesting sort of things that are going to emerge uh, um, towards the end of 2023. And then as I step into 2024, we'll talk about them later, but they revolve around pieces that I'm writing. And there's one thing that I really wanted to—I uh, was so excited because I was thinking a lot about how we think about our organization strategically. There's all kinds of great frameworks. I am planning an episode that's going to be dedicated specifically to strategy and and approaches to carrying out strategy. But today I was excited uh, to talk about uh, this specific topic, um, where. It's something that I'm really developing as just part of my own strategic toolkit. I think it's something that really has the potential to reshape the way we approach challenges and opportunities in our organization through the lens of of strategic thinking. If you, in your own organization, have been in strategy... Um, or I, I think just, you know, any type of leadership role for any length of time, you're, you're likely very familiar with some classic um, tools um, within that strategic toolkit or frameworks. Um, I'm thinking of things like our SWOT analysis, for instance. Think of the classic SWOT analysis. That's S-W-O-T. Um, and, and without getting into too much detail what, well, you know, what that is, uh, that's an acronym. S is for strengths. W is for weakness. Uh, o is for opportunities. And the T is for threats. And this is a, a very classic two by two type matrix or a way of, of thinking about it, where as an, uh, you think about your organization's strengths um, and you think about its weaknesses, so that's an internal evaluation, you know, things that that are the strengths of your particular organization and things that you are acknowledging as weaknesses and then opportunities and threats. I always think of these two aspects as the external view. So things that, that, um, are possible opportunities for the organization, things you might want to step into things that can provide you a competitive advantage. And then the T is the threats. So again, those threats could come from your weaknesses, um, but they could also be external things like, I don't know, your competition has launched a, a, a new service or a new product. Uh, market environments uh, maybe have changed uh, and whatever is, is is happening. And what this is doing is it's giving you a snapshot in time analysis of um, your situation. And the SWOT analysis, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a highly valuable uh, tool. But when I think of how things are so rapidly changing for organizations, I wanted to think about a a, a sort of a a deeper and differentiated way to step into thinking about our organizations beyond just the strengths and the weaknesses of our organizations and the opportunities and the threats. And I wanted to come up with a, 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 a methodology or an approach. And so, come up with this idea of what I'm calling the Resilient Innovator Framework, or RIF um, for short. So what is this, uh, and and why this this Resilient Innovator Framework? I wanted to do this because as I was thinking about organizations, um, I, I realized that we have to have this way to both understand the potential threats Think of, again, the things that we see in a SWOT analysis, but turn them into innovation opportunities. And it's not just about sort of surviving in this environment of exponential change and disruption, but really thriving and leading the charge through that. How do we we take disruption and we, we flip it into um, not something that is disruptive to us but something that we can use to our advantage so these are some early thoughts in and around the resilient innovator framework the rif Um, and let me just sort of break down um, some of these initial thoughts with you so the way i see this kind of framework emerging is you start with really what i call a, a a preemptive strike session. So I'm thinking of working with groups of leaders. You may be working with groups of leaders. Uh, You may be a leader inside your group. And so what you do is you put yourself in the shoes of your competitors. You know, quite often when we do strategy work, or I think of, you know, design thinking workshops, we put ourselves in the shoes of our customers and we design, um, our strategy around best serving their needs. In this approach, I'm suggesting that we start off by putting ourselves in the shoes of our competitors. Look at our organization, look at your organization through the eyes, through the viewpoint of your competitor. And I want you to ask yourself this question. If we were our fiercest competitor, How would we disrupt our own business? That's a really important question. Put yourself in the shoes of your competitor. Stop and think, who do you compete with? And if you were leading that organization, how would you go about disrupting your current organization? This is really about thinking radically and, and uncovering our own vulnerabilities and, and, and exploring that before someone else does that to us, right? We're being proactive, we're being creative as opposed to that coming from the outside and now it's, it's something that's happened to us. So that's kind of the, the preemptive strike session. You are thinking like your competition and what your competition would do to disrupt your business. From there, you go through a weakness mapping exercise. And here we really, we, we group the threats and we prioritize them based on the impact it would have on our organization. And we really have to dig deep into the root causes of these threats. We wanna be able to, to understand the root cause because you can't really address shortcomings without understanding their root cause. And this is where the RIF approach really takes a unique turn. We then, once we've done our preemptive strike session and we've done our weakness mapping, you step into um, what I'm calling the strengths overreach analysis. And this is an exercise where we ensure that our strengths, again, that you typically see in a SWOT analysis, and our strengths are things that we, as organ, you know, as as organizations and and leaders in our organizations, we take pride in our strengths. Usually, this is a pretty easy box to do in a SWOT analysis. People like to talk about what they're good at, um, and if we're leaders uh, in our our market space, there are lots of things that we've done really well to to put us in that position and to maintain us in that position. In this approach, I would challenge groups, whether, again, it's my own leadership team that I'm working with or if I'm working with clients, to, to engage in this strengths overreach analysis, which is really an exercise to ensure that the very strengths that have catapulted us to our position in the marketplace don't become uh, you know, a, a, an Achilles heel for us. Don't create um, um, blinders for us. Uh, think of, uh, you know, an organization like Blockbuster uh, that rent, used to rent movies and they, one of their strengths, I'm sure if you had a SWOT analysis from, from those times, you know, one of those strengths that they have would be that they had this vast physical store network. But you've got to juxtapose that against someone like Netflix who was developing a very nimble digital model. So you want to look at your strengths and and really critically look at them. Then we can head into opportunity reversal. This is the fourth uh, uh, phase of this piece of um, uh, the framework. And what opportunity reversal is, is that for every threat that we've identified, we brainstorm how we could turn that into a unique selling proposition or value proposition. And the idea is to really convert those challenges into avenues for growth Uh, and innovation. And then the last piece that I've got here, I'm sort of looking at a diagram that I've sketched out where I've been flushing these ideas out, is in what I call protective strategy development. This is the last piece, and this is where we develop action plans against major threats and ensure that there's a timeline for implementation. This is a critical, critical part. Um, You've got to be able to map that out Uh, Because if you take too long, the environment that we are in today will, for sure, things will change. And the work that we've done um, can become stale uh, and it can become um, um, basically irrelevant. Once we've done these phases, the last sort of area of focus would be on continuous resilience building. And this is... You've gone through this kind of iteration once. Don't make it a once and done, and then you put it in a drawer. Make this part of your leadership toolkit. Continuous resilience building is really about fostering a culture of proactive thinking, constant iteration, uh, constant learning uh, about this external environment and, and what these forces mean to your organization. And to continue to look at yourself, take time, intentional time, where you're looking at yourself as an organization critically from the outside, from that competitor point of view, not just from the customer point of view. Don't lose sight of your customer needs, whoever they might be. If you're a school, you know, you're looking at that student experience, you're looking at that parent experience, but you should be looking at your competitor schools. If you're in the private or independent school market, you got to be looking at how Traditional and non-traditional competitors can disrupt you. Non-traditional, that's the the innovator's dilemma from Clay Christensen, which we've spoken about many times here on the podcast. You must be, be understanding that outside world. And then if you do this repeatedly and you make this part of your lexicon and your thinking and your leadership approaches... You'll, you'll create this cycle of continuous resilience building uh, and, and, and this culture. You know, as I think about this, I can't stress enough how transformative this type of exercise can be. It could happen in a um, a morning session that you're running. I would suggest that you do this over a number of smaller sessions if you are doing this within your own organization because you're going to want time to... to capture information and do some thinking as a group, go out, pull some external resources, come back in. Um, And and I'm going to do some further development of this idea. I'm going to write an article and I will point you to that in terms of this um, um, uh, RIF approach. Um, And I'm looking forward to sort of trying it out. I haven't tried this specifically with a group. Um, It's just sort of come to me as I've been thinking about uh, things that I know I'll be stepping into. And, and I've been thinking about ways to refine things that are in my strategy toolkit uh, to adapt to the world we're in. Uh, and that it's, a, it's an acknowledgement. The times are different. And yes, the classic things in our strategic toolkit and a lot of these classic frameworks They're so important and they're still very relevant, but you've got to find ways to, I think, adapt them uh, and to evolve them and and make them your own and make sure they're having the impact that you and your organization really need in the current day. In this segment, I want to talk about uh, an article that I had read. It was in my sort of digital reading pile from Education Week, and that can be found at edweek.org E-D, online. Um, and it was a, um, an interesting article that was called Students Need Better slash More Data Science Skills. Here are five ways schools can help. So this caught my eye Um Because it has a relation to (laughs) the work that I've been um, pushing forward at Branksome Hall for the last eight years, which is to drive innovation uh, and really ensure that um, our girls um, are prepared for the world that they're stepping into. And data and data literacy, in my opinion, will be – it's like having a second language. Um, You've got to be able to be data literate, I think, to be able to step into – Um, The post-secondary world for students and then ultimately the world of work Um, and so this caught my eye because there was the the skills for students and it caught my eye because it's related to data science the other piece was there were suggestions around um, five ways that schools can help to bring about this we've talked about the importance and so I'm not going to retread that uh, in today's segment here um, but the article is quite good. If you Google Education Week um, and the title "Students Need Better Slash More Data Science Skills," here are five ways schools can help. You can see the full article, but for just a quick recap, you know what were those five things? Well, it started off number one: invest in professional learning. Um, so it starts with our teachers. We've got to have professional development um, for our educators to be able to comfortably step into um, how they they introduce this and how they, they integrate um, this into the curriculum. If we don't do that, um, even our teachers that uh, focus on math, they're going to be uncomfortable teaching data science concepts. That's just, it's a no-brainer. Um, the second um, suggestion was that when you start to introduce this into the student experience and the curricular experience, Make sure that you're focusing on real-world applications, and this is something that I have um, really stressed over my entire time at the school, which is connect the student learning to the real world. Give them real-world tools. Give them real-world problems. You know, uh, when I was teaching uh, the design course, I I treated it as a studio, not a classroom. Uh, you know, I treated the the students there as designers, as a part of my design team. And we talked often about doing work for clients. And the same is true as you step into um, introducing data science as part of um, what's being taught within your institution. Um, You have to be able to uh, take those curricular resources and connect it to real-world situations. Then you'll see student engagement will go up. I think even educator engagement with something new um, will increase if um, if you can carry that out. The third suggestion was to partner with higher education institutions. I think this is brilliant. Again, it's been a part of my own strategy and strategic approach in evolving what has to happen in education. We've got to be able to make these connections. We've got to be able to expose the students. We've got to be able to expose our faculty. We've got to be able to evolve our curriculum um, to connect to what happens uh, beyond the K to 12, uh, experience. And I think, you know, again, when we are looking to transform, we look for partners that that can help us to transform. And I think that post-secondary institutions can play a role. And it was nice to see that, that this is, this is, um, one of the suggestions that, uh, has come out in this special report that if you want to introduce meaningful data science learning, um, in a K-12 environment, partnering with higher education institutions can really help to shape that. It can prepare your educators. It can connect what you're doing in the classroom to what students will choose to do post-secondary. The fourth one is furthering that idea of partnerships, and that's looking for industry partners. You know, if you're going to connect it to the real-world experience, then look for ways to connect it to to real-world industry partners, um, that there are lots of organizations in the business world that would would love to, I think, creatively step into working with K-12 schools to kind of help shape um, what that looks like to get students engaged and have students understand where can this type of learning take you career-wise? What can it unlock for you in terms of your areas of passion, interest, and future work? Uh, and the last one um, was, I think, less relevant to the work that I've been doing, but they said seek support from policymakers. I think this was really one you're looking at broad public education. Um, I think it's an important piece, um, but in terms of, of kind of the world of education that I've been in, I think it's, it's the, the, the lesser of the five approaches. I have to say, you know, I wanted to introduce this here today, not just to share these these four to five um, things that you can be doing as a school or if you're a leader in a school. I think the most important thing is to acknowledge that this is important and start to do your own exploration. When you hear data science, people, it's kind of a scary term, especially for those who are not in the industry. Um, And start to understand what it is, understand potential future career paths for students, understand how pervasive uh, data and the importance of data will be in every single industry area, and every single aspect of life. And that as educators, you know, your responsibility uh, is to prepare young people for that future. Uh, And so, I think what's most important, uh, you know, these are five steps that have come out of this particular special report. I'd say, I'd say that step zero, that foundational step, is just start to understand what this is uh, in terms of, of the world of data, the importance of data, and how it is, it is really shaping and touching every aspect of life and work. And once you can internalize that, once you can get comfortable with that, you can start to make those connections to your own educational institution. You can start to make those connections to how it is strategic for you. You can make those connections as to the value it will bring to your students. And then you can begin to look for ways to drive that change through professional development, through partnerships, all of these various these, uh, various elements that came out of the report. So it was a really interesting read I thought I would share that with a listening audience uh, this week as opposed to a tech tool tip um, and give you just something to kind of provoke your curiosity, to, to pique your curiosity and, and be provocative in terms of thinking about new offerings, right? How to integrate it in an existing curriculum, uh, the traditional departments that we've got within schools. But maybe you look for ways to push the boundaries and introduce something really radically different. As an acknowledgement of how important uh, this area of study, uh, this area of skill, this area of mindset is uh, to develop in young people. Well, thank you for joining everybody. We're going to wrap up episode 53. That everybody get on with their day. I know that I am going to get on with my day. I'm going to get this published and jump in my car and make my way down to campus. It is a pleasure, as always, to have been able to spend this time where I get to sort of talk out loud to a very large group of people uh, and, and really let some of these things that I've been excited about, things that I've been thinking about, things that I think are important, things that I hear from, uh, listeners, um, who contact me as, as areas that they are curious about or that they are appreciative that we have, um, brought some of this, um, thinking and discussion. Uh, and so again, real pleasure. It always just, it's the highlight of my, of my week to be able to do this on Friday mornings. Um, and it's always just, I don't know, it, it starts me off on some extra high energy. I find, uh, sort of releasing this out uh, to the world and, and flushing out these thoughts. So thanks again uh, for joining. Cause as I've said uh, many times before, a podcast without any listeners is just a person standing in a room talking to themselves, which maybe could be, uh, part of your, your, uh, intellectual process, but uh, it's all the more rewarding when you know that, uh, it's impacting, it's impacting people until we connect again next week, everybody. I hope that you all stay well I hope that you are having just a great November as we step into it. Um, and as the calendar year, you know, winds down, I hope that, um, you are growing professionally, that you are growing personally, uh, for those that are in education, you know, we're making our way towards that, uh, December break for, for those of us that, um, uh, kind of follow that academic calendar in this part of the world. Um, and and I hope that uh, you know that first term is going splendid for you. By this point in time, everybody's sort of hitting their their stride um, and and you know you're sort of halfway through um, that first portion of the academic year. And I hope that that's been going well for you. I hope that you as well are are uh, growing. And you are seeing the impact you're having on uh, your students and on your colleagues. I am Michael Ianni-Pilarchio, always just so thrilled to host you here. And until we connect again next week, let me simply say ciao, everybody.